This is The Backbench. Your source of political news, alongside interviews with leading politicians, activists, and academics. From the University of Edinburgh. Hosted by myself, Jonas Dean. And me, Carter Wickham. Order! Order! Welcome to The Backbench. Hello everybody and welcome to this episode of The Backbench and today we're very lucky to have two formidable figures in public policy and academia and parliamentary decision making and we're going to be talking about the subject of labour and their new economic proposals, whether that's a break from the past and how it fits with the future. Today we are joined by Lord Russell Moyle, who is currently serves as Member of Parliament for the constituency of Brighton-Kempton. He has been elected Member of the House of Commons since 2017 as a member of the UK Labour Party. Since 2020, Lloyd has served on the International Trade Committee and the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee. Under Jeremy Corbyn, he served as the Shadow, Shadow Chancellor for East Asia, Pacific Americas and the Overseas Territories. Since taking his seat in 2017, Lloyd has been a strong advocate on youth affairs, defending the rights of HIV-positive people, and supporting the LGBT community. Jonas and I are very glad to have you here today, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. And our, our second guest for today is Jan Eichhorn. And Jan is a senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh, where he holds the position of chair of the Educational Committee. He is an expert on well-being, civic education, economic policy and all things in between. He writes for a very prestigious think tank and thank you very much for giving up your time today to have this discussion. Glad to be here. So I'll start in with the first question we have. So in the speech made by the Shadow Chancellor in January in the Moyes lecture given at the City University of London, she gave a quote about how once high streets have lost a critical mass of business, a downward spiral of reduced footfall can take hold. And that's quite topical today because as of today, we had ASOS by the Topshop, Topman and Miss Selfridge brand. Last week, we had uh, Boohoo by Demonyms. And recently, we had Mike Ashley by House of Fraser. This has resulted in an estimated job loss of 25,000 people. And it's also left a pension hole of £350 million. So my first question is with today's purchase and how this is not the first time a major high street brand has went bankrupt is it the duty of the government to play a role in moving the high street into a new directions as individuals move online lloyd if you would like to start off it's not the government's role to protect per se individual businesses but it is the government's role to look at a wider economic strategy for uh, the retail sector and look at how um, the government currently rewards and punishes different parts of that, uh, the economy. Uh, we've, we've done it for now a number of years. Part of it was a view that um, the out of town shopping, people driving out of the town would be desirable socially, economically. Um, and part of it is just based on our outdated taxation regimes for property. What it means is effectively you have a government nudging property prices um, uh, up and making uh, it less affordable for businesses to run in cities and in towns and making it more affordable for places to run effectively out of town in warehouse, etc. Now, that's fine. That's a decision that governments have made and you uh, based it on property value. 
But actually, if we step back and say, what is the purpose of tax in this regard? Well, of course, it's revenue raising, unless you believe in money, money, modern monetary theory, where it's slightly different. But let's let's keep to keep to the standard. It's revenue raising, but also it has the effect to help influence and change behaviours. And at the moment, it's a poor revenue raiser because it doesn't actually raise the revenue for retail that's making um, the big bucks, um, which is online. And it actually nudges behaviour in the wrong direction. So yes, the government does have a responsibility because the government's already using or uh, um, has a taxation framework that disadvantages the high street. And the reason you would want the high street to advantage uh, to be uh, um, to, to grow potentially is because you know there are a number of social um, uh, and uh, and wide advantages that link on to health advantages, education advantages, etc. To have strong communities that are geographically placed that interact with each other, and if you don't have that interaction, you have fragmented communities that have then education and health inequalities grow and become more difficult to challenge, and you have wider political problems. And so there is a great and good the high street and yes the government has a role to help support that high street does it have the role to bail out individual businesses as i said i am not sure it does in the long run although there is an analyst talks about this sometimes there is sometimes an argument that the government should intervene on when you're in the middle of a crisis and she says that there is one school of thought that you should just allow businesses that were uneconomic to go to the wayside and she says i reject that view because that is not the view my view of how government should act in crisis so just to follow you up on that uh, Annalise talks a lot about the fact that um the pandemic has sped up things that would have otherwise happened could you talk a bit more about the specific interventions that you would support well I, i've hinted there about the interventions and it's been a long-running uh, party policy that we should move from a, a set of taxation for businesses that are fixed costs and we should move towards a system of taxation that is based on revenue um, and turnover costs for businesses. We should look at uh, taxing, uh, taxing businesses that we think um, are growing. She talks about a third of the economy is now online, but the tax base is not fair uh, an equivalent there. So those are a number of the, of the things you could do. I'm not going to necessarily draw out my list of the very top priorities right no. now. Annalise identifies a few, but I don't think even she says these are the only things that sh should be done. At this point in the cycle, you're saying here are the things that should be explored. Jan, do you have anything to weigh in on that? So I think it, um, uh, I agree with quite a few of the, the points raised in terms of concrete policies. The state needs to step in, in particular in times of a crisis like this. And it's one of the strengths of the speech that makes it unequivocally clear, I think, that um, the, the goal here is for the state to play a strong role in averting a crisis, not immediately moving into, uh, for example, fiscal responsibility mechanism like we've seen in 2010, when way too early um, state funding was, was withdrawn from certain things, which resulted in a, in a double dip recession. So that is really positive. It's also really positive to see that a lot of points um, made in the speech are about looking at proper impact assessment. So rather than thinking, what is the ideological ground for doing things? It's about what's the outcome. And I just talked about that's ultimately, you know, what, what you want to see, what is the outcome for businesses and, and, you know, the people affected by it. 
So those things are really positive about the speech. The bit that then, however, it falls short a bit is that that effectively is, is, is a very classic approach. There's nothing particularly innovative about saying these things. It's a change from the current government's position, but it's not really anything that, you know, acknowledges the opportunity um, that the pandemic provides of really thinking more fundamentally about the role of the state, which in here is very similar to the position of um, the last Labour government, um, some of the policies that uh, kind of policy frameworks that we have seen in, in previous manifestos. So the role of the state in the economy is not really questioned. It's very, very orthodox kind of classic Keynesian thinking that we see here. Um, so, but the speech has this ambition of really showing uh, something transformative in nature, and, and I don't think it lives up to that. But that does not take away from the point that the, the specific interventions in crisis response, um, I think, are genuinely um, very good and absolutely necessary. Thank you for that. So if I can come in with a follow-up for Lloyd. So what was very significant about this boy's lecture was the fact that it was the first time it was given by a woman. Um, which the Shadow Chancellor points out in her first, in her opening statements. And something I want to talk on, so with the purchasing of these high street stores by the likes of ASOS and Boohoo, what we've seen is women have been disproportionately affected in terms of the fact that, well, 20,000 women have now lost their jobs as two-third of all retail jobs are taken by women. So the question would be is, we talked about how, you know, you're saying about how we want to keep the high street in order to, you know, keep communities together. What effect do you think this is going to have overall? Because what we also saw last year was when Debenhams, uh, they had a huge issue with their pensions, which again, disproportionately affected women. And we're seeing it again with, um, with Arcadia, who now has a 350 million pound pension hole, which is again, disproportionately affecting women. So I guess... What do you think the outcome of this is going to be, and does government have a role in solving this? Well, on, on the on the pensions issue, the British government actually has always had a role, and most other governments um, have, have always accepted a role in making sure that contracts are fulfilled. And actually, Annalise does mention that. She says that we should be promoting the idea that Britain is a place where fair play happens, the rule of law, we, we, that's part of our export strategy. There is a problem, however, if um, Britain is seen as a place where people, rather than come to play fair, where people can come and play fast and loose. And that is a danger, particularly on some of those kind of pension funds, where actually if you're in the US, there is argument that the regulation would have been stricter and regulators would have come in more heavy and would have been able to have personally followed the money. You know, the US might have weaker regulation, but once they enact it, they fill it, fulfill it to the nth degree, if you understand what I'm saying. Whereas in the UK, that's been a very weak area of our, of our enforcement. Um, I think that is slightly different, however, although she does talk about uh, um, uh, you know, needing to make sure we do that. That is different from having an impact assessment, which is another area that she talks about, about how um, those economic shifts are, um, are damaging certain groups of people. And then you're quite right to point out about uh, um, retail jobs. And, and probably is another reason why you would say that in town, 
shopping and retail is an important social good. Yeah, and as you say, as you bring up the fact how it is an important how it's important to the community and society. But for the past decade, we have seen sort of the collapse of the high street and the pandemic has just made that process a lot faster than many people hoped. So with a lot of these businesses going online and Amazon clearly taking over the market in a lot of aspects, is the high street going to be here in 10, 20 years, or is it going to have to adapt to something else? Is it going to have to adapt to a new industry to take over the high street? Well, it will have to adapt. Um, now, I'm not sure that the conservative policy of allowing easy conversions to housing is necessarily the adaptation that we would want. Annalise talks interestingly about a greater role for the competitions and markets authority, where you see some of these tech monopolies and she mentions them uh, specifically. The, the, she talks about this hyper concentration uh, um, of, uh, um, uh, of consumer spending um, in a few companies and in terms of in technology has ended up squeezing out many new innovations coming forward. And so there, there is a role within the market framework, not just within a kind of Keynesian framework, framework of government pump priming in, in, in periods of recession, there is a role there to make sure that those companies don't dominate and then distort the market. And it might well be that what you do is you expect many of those small shops and businesses to be dual trading. And we've seen some of that uh, happen already, where they trade online and they trade in person. And what you do is you provide both activities. Now, some of that isn't going very far back. My granddad was a butcher, uh, was, was not the actual butcher in the shop, was the, was the butcher in the cycle uh, that cycled around to your house and sold you the meat you'd ordered from the shop. So this idea of door-to-door -door sales, people, people, um, you know, kind of accessing goods via the telephone or people would write actually to the shop and they would uh, send it over, is actually, some of it is, um, going back to the future. So, so this is a question to both of you. Do we look at the importance of protecting the high streets? And I mean, some people have called this a kind of polo ring recession, which is that people in local areas have had some success with keeping their businesses running, but obviously those in the city have struggled. Looking forward, there's obviously an important role for also helping people to get online and to start that internet business both as a kind of politician and as an academic, so to, to, to both of you. I mean, is it possible to really regulate or prevent the centralization of the market once people have moved online, given the dominance of the major kind of hegemonic retailers, people like Amazon and Arcadia Group? And kind of how would you go about that once we have tried to move people online, which is obviously inevitable? Um, I'm, if I, if I, can can come in on that. It's a I um it's absolutely possible to do things. And and I fundamentally agree with the point also of made in the speech that uh, we have to look very carefully at the advantages that online businesses have um compared to, you know, as it was said in the speech, brick and mortar businesses and and that plays a really big role. But the fundamental point I think is, and that is where I I find the the speech um a lacking a fair bit. It's actually that the underlying issue around this is finance. Um, the reason why online businesses do so well is 
because they work for highly financialized models. Amazon makes the majority of its profit not from um, anything to do with the retail side, but it's about data infrastructure and financialized models um, of, of engagement. Um, and it's, it's those sorts of things that really, really need to engage. So we can do a lot in terms of um, supporting businesses. We can do a lot about certain aspects of taxation. But unless we address this in the context of finance and, and the role that um, financial capital plays, um, we won't address it. Basically, the, the question of online versus offline, and especially big online companies, cannot be addressed simply as a set of online service providers. It needs to be a question of how we engage with financial capital. And in that regard, the speech, I have to admit, this is probably the biggest criticism, I think is quite naive because it talks about the danger of future crises. And when it talks there about the potential for financial crises, it talks about it as exogenous shocks. Examples that are brought in are debt crises in other countries that could relate back to financial institutions in the UK and so on. Whereas one of the big points of the financial crisis of 2008, 2009 is that it was endogenous, that it was, you know, um, from a Minskyan analysis, that it's kind of this kind of repetition of crisis, crises building on crises. And that, yes, the pandemic is an exogenous shock, but everything else to do is so intrinsic to the system. And there was nothing in it about it. And that's, I think it can be addressed, but it gets addressed by changing the rules of the game from a financial side, not only from the kind of direct trading aspect. I, I think there's, there's, that's, that's true. Um, I think the other area that it doesn't really tackle is really the understanding of where that boundary between the market and the state should lie in some of these areas. I mean, it, it quite rightly uh, um, points out that, you know, kind of, and, and, and I think it's become quite established in thinking now that where you have natural monopolies, the state or um, some other form of uh, um, uh, non-profit or, you know, kind of non-vested interest um, that is not based just on capital accumulation should run it because it runs it more effectively and more efficiently. But if you think about how Uber has become, and there are two approaches, you can, you can, you can, the old approach would have been, um, would have been of the kind of the Bell Corporation, you break it up into lots of little, but it just doesn't work with technology because technology is so globalized. So then the other discussion surely that needs to happen is how do some of these businesses that effectively are intermediary businesses, aren't they, between the high street, keeping it alive, you know, the co-op has just moved over to get Deliveroo to do their deliveries. Deliveroo and Uber Eats have, have kept many a, a small uh, restaurant afloat during this time because they have been the link between the consumer and, but when they take such a role that they are effectively the monopoly provider, and it is a natural monopoly because you can only naturally have one, maybe two providers in that kind of market. Is there a role for the state to actually provide? Um, uh, and, and, and actually then the state can take the advantage of the data and you have the protection around the data as well, because that is, a, that is also a, um, an issue around that data um, protection that we haven't yet faced. 
Yeah, and I, I think that during this pandemic, we've obviously seen a massive rise in the role of, like, like you say, and you mentioned Deliveroo, uh, companies in the gig economy that facilitate working from home or uh, working in your own hours. But what we've also seen is a kind of real rising questions about workers' rights, uh, sick pay, a lack of representation for, for example, delivery drivers. Uh, and I think it just brings me back to, to, to what I'm wondering before is, as we attribute more importance to companies like Deliveroo, are we relinquishing power from state-controlled employment laws and services and the ability to actually regulate what's going on with our workers? Well, Annalise talks about the need to look at the regulation, but to me, that is that is that is actually, and 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 Jan there is right. It is a very old-fashioned way of just looking at it to say, okay, how do we need to give these people workers' rights? I think there's probably a more fundamental discussion that needs to happen, which is about what is the role of those businesses as private businesses as opposed to um, other forms of businesses. Because, because right. they, they, they provide, effectively, a community and public service. I absolutely agree. And it goes back to the question Lloyd, that, that you raised a moment ago about the understanding of the role of, of the state in relation to businesses. It's not about you know, state versus business, but mm -hmm. really that question of, of the interplay. And to me, the, the way the speech sets it out and the way you described that as well is, 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 is old fashioned in a way. It's the plausible thing. It's the thing that many people would agree with. But to me, it sounds taking away the crisis response, but more generally, it's basically providing the correct infrastructure for businesses to work in. And then when markets don't work, when we have a situation of market failure to act as a correct, there's very little in the speech about the state as a um, co-creator or a co-actor basically within it. And that is, there are elements in there where it says, you know, yes, we need certain infrastructure provisions and that's really, but that's that's not new. Obviously this is, we could go back to the new labor government and that's, that was basically the argument. Some things have to be provided so that then businesses can thrive within this environment. Now, we have a lot of research from heterodox economists like Kay um, and like Mazzucato who've, who've argued very much that that is a really old fashioned, quite naive understanding actually of the role of the state that yes, sometimes acts as a corrective, yes, does provide infrastructure, regulates things like workers' rights and so on. That's all really important. But fundamentally, when it comes, we've talked about a moment ago, innovation and so on, and a lot of these digital companies, well, that innovation is created by those, those companies, but a lot of the material that goes into it, a lot of the resources that go into this have strong links to state action. Um, and actually, not just in terms of states at some point having done some basic research, but really being involved in these processes and kind of networks of innovation. And again, there's very little reflection of this, and that's opportunity to think differently and empirically about. I mean, one of the examples, it's, it's right that, you know, some of these monopoly powers undermine the capability of innovation in others, yes, but it is then suggests it kind of implies the speech that small and medium-sized companies are much better at innovating. And there's no empirical evidence for this. Um, so I agree with the issue of monopoly power, but we need to look at what really happens empirically. Um, and uh, to me, just the speech, in a sense, taking out the crisis elements, if you look at the economics of it, 
it could have been kind of, you know, given any time over the last 20 years with some nuances in terms of the economic approach. And that's, that's a shame because I think it could go much further in terms of really thinking about how to transform some of those questions and thinking about what, what Lloyd described as things around um, community provisions between the private sector and the state and a much more networked understanding. I think, I mean, I get your point. I think you're being a little harsh on Annalise. I mean, where she says part of the answer will be well-targeted infrastructure, as I argued for previously. And she says this requires um, uh, a baseline in which companies will be able to go to innovate with government and make sure that these are open and interoperable. I think that, you know, she, she, she goes on, says this means grasping the nettle, you know, kind of co um, encounter um, uh, productive regulatory systems need to be removed, but also talks around trying to create kind of open communication with business and government. Now, I think she's using very orthodox language there, and she's framing it in a very orthodox way. I think you're right. But I think the underlying message there is that she's saying that we need to not just win infrastructure investment shouldn't just be about big roads and railways, that they should be about co production with businesses at all different levels and businesses should see government as the go-to place to be able to do that and actually universities have been doing that for many many years very successfully. I agree with that but it's um, there are and, and as I said I think there are positive elements in here but it's formulated in a way that is so cautious so careful so um, like not actually embracing you know the work that 15 years ago wasn't there. You know, it's, it's not a niche area anymore of, of work that really, really has provided language for these things as well. And then when you look in some more detail, and the bits where she does talk about innovation, um, the instruments that she talks about in relation to supply chains that go to smaller firms, which are all important, of course. The instruments she talks about are things like investment allowances, R&D tax credit, um, export finance guarantees, all important things, but it, it really doesn't get to the core of innovation capacity, which, which has much more to do with the real structures of it. And it makes some of the classic mistakes, like talking R&D um, tax incentives and, and cuts are really ineffective because companies often spend of their R&D spend something like 80 to 90%, especially the large ones, on development of products rather than the research that creates innovation. So I see that there are positive elements in there, but I really don't think it goes far enough. I think it's, it's, it's stuck somewhere that is, is behind what we need, frankly. And I think where a lot of work has gone into in giving us those frameworks and much better understanding of how the state can support the private sector in jointly creating innovation. I think that that's so the, the difficulty here is who's the, who's, Who's this to? Um, and I think this is a difficulty, particularly for Labour politicians in the wake of, you know, kind of a relatively disastrous 2019 election and a feeling that maybe we were trying to be too radical or too modern. And I don't just mean that in the policy pledges, but I mean that in our thinking. And we needed to roll back to 
step back a bit and then bring the people on that journey. So the question is, is Annalise here speaking to those who are at the cutting edge or is she speaking to the wider electorate to say these things can be couched in rather normal conservative, small c conservative kind of ideas, but actually they will improve things in your life. You know, kind of the common sense politician approach rather than the I'm the radical, but the policy underlying that is pretty much the same. I don't know. I can't speak to what's in her mind, but I suspect that is always a dilemma with Labour politicians. So can I, can I just jump in with a quick question there, which is you're, you're right that we can't speak to what's in her mind, but this speech goes out to 300 uh, kind of Goliath leaders of uh, finance and business in the city. And it seems like it's been given almost no attention. And I just wanted to step back and ask you about the broader positioning of Labour, whether first, this is a very clear break from Corbyn policies and new economics that he was related to. Uh, and the second is, why has this been received with such little enthusiasm by the business community? Uh, is it because it's really for the Labour uh, kind of advocates out there, or is it just uh, laying out a grand plan that just hasn't been acknowledged? Well, if I, if you don't mind, if I just very briefly, because it connects to what Lloyd said, uh, which I think is really really valid point, um, and then I'll I'll respond more directly to your your question as well, but it's to me there are two really interesting things. One is um, I think the to me it sounds very plausible, like what you described, and that's kind of how I read it. It's kind of we need to make sure, I mean, the word responsible is in this again and again and again. It's, it's about responsibility and showing that, which, you know, no one is against responsibility per se. So, you know, that's that's fine. But the problem is it, it reminds me so much of actually the narratives that Ed Miliband's team put out, you know, which was very much, we're going to go be, be very responsible, but we're going to do it better. We're going to do something. And we're actually presenting something quite different. We're using a language is going to come down. Then you come to 2014 and suddenly it was, the narrative was that Labour somehow had caused the, the, the death burden of the UK, which, which it hadn't. And it, it was just frankly wrong that the crisis in the aftermath, that, that sorry, the lead that the death burden had caused crisis and economic instability. But it, it was then lost because it was a much more careful narrative. And I don't think careful narratives work here fundamentally. Um, the, the other point, and, and one of the big problems in it is, is that it really doesn't tackle finance. It really, really, the speech does not tackle the underlying issues around finance. It says towards the end uh, that um, there, there are these concerns about, um, you know, uh, unproductive assets and so on, for example, but it presents nothing in this regard. So I understand the need to be careful, but I, at the same time, it, it to me, it actually, it's not, there are really good individual policy points in there, you know, as the longer term perspective and all of this. But the question to me at the end is, well, yes, it's, it's a competent piece of, of, you know, presentation here. It's a competent piece of certain ideas, but it falls short and it, it empirically gets a few things wrong, actually. And, and so, so who does it speak to? You know, if I'm, I'm a much more hardcore person in terms of classic financial orthodoxy. I'll still not go for this um, because I'll go to the one who wants to do even less. And if I'm someone who wants something that, that is more fundamental, I'm also not going to go for this. So I'm not sure who it speaks to in the end, actually. You, you again have 
outlined the very dilemma of the Labour Party at the moment, probably not just in finance, but in yeah. in, in 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 many of our policies. You know, the, the need to keep often that um, in in a kind of cultural and class sense, the you know kind of the young working class urbanites um, on board who often want a more radical rethink of how the economy is working versus the older, often kind of property owning uh, working class who uh, are often in towns and rural areas who, 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 who take a slightly different view. And traditionally, both of them have been Labour's base, but on the view of kind of radicalism, um, and I mean that in all senses, both economic and cultural, uh, there is a vast difference. And so it's about how do you try and bridge that gap to say, these things are both radical and common sense. These things are both, um, you know, kind of going to improve everyone's lives and change things, but also will be paid for by people that aren't, you know, all those things are really difficult kind of conversations uh, to, to get through. And so I don't envy uh, Annalise that at all. I think it was interesting, John McDonald's view when I spoke to him about it was that this continues some of the work that he's done rather than abandons or moves away from it. And, and arguably the economic um, um, part of Jeremy's um, uh, leadership, uh, Jeremy didn't really have so much to do with it personally, it was, it was under John McDonald. And that actually was the bit that often had um, got the least attention in some of the press, but actually was the was was the stuff that really was the game changer that, um, that more and more people were being won over by. I agree. I agree. By the way, that it's this is not a fundamental break with um, the previous uh, team and so on in terms of further development. Because I, but it but it's missing out on some of those points. I absolutely agree with the challenge. But, but, but that's why I think it's a shame that there isn't more of an embracing of some of the, these kind of thinkers and economists who put out ideas that combine it really, really well. So I've mentioned obviously Mazzucato before who talks about a role that, you know, has a common sense element in this, but it takes away some of the, the things that simply don't work. I mean, one of the really big problems that other people like Anne Patterfall who make this point, of course, is one of the big problems that I had with the speech from a kind of more academic point of view is that it makes the point fundamentally correctly at first that, you know, we don't have this glut of savings that can be used now and invested because a lot of people had a reduction in their income and so on. But a really big problem is it makes the assumption that investment is basically caused by savings, that it's this old model that John Maynard Keynes already disagreed, but Minsky did. And more recently, people like Ampetafor have shown very clearly, savings are not the foundation for investment. It's, it's a classic thing. Every student of finance learns it in their introductory classes, but it's not how it works. And this speech says, you know, explicitly that that is the, the problem is that the savings aren't available. Um, and, and that's where a bit is lacking, because actually, I think breaking out of trying to find this middle ground between two different things can, can mean that you don't find, find any ground. Whereas there are alternative approaches that, you know, suggest, for example, if we think about, you know, getting rid of certain elements of finance and, and actually see much more the shared, um, yeah, the shared interests of business owners and workers 
Um, as all, but in the non-financial sector, if, if, if that's a stronger emphasis, you actually build the, the coalition of the vast majority of the population who are not, which is something that isn't being done in, in that way. And it's, it's, I, think, I think the problem is by just trying to straddle between the two uh, points, I think, Lloyd, that you correctly identified there. If you try to straddle between the two, you're not going to make either side happy. Um, so I, I, I think, and, and Labour has tried that before. I think that's that's the problem. Um, it's a big problem, but I think there's there's no alternative um, to trying to create a different narrative rather than trying to stay somewhere between the classic two narratives. I think. But this is this is a problem not just with Labour. This is a problem with almost all social democracies around uh, the world because after the kind of um, 1960s student uprisings around Europe, there was this coalition of left intellectuals and city radicals and kind of working class, um, oh well you could argue it actually goes back even longer, the Fabians and the foundation of the Labour Party, you know, but there has always been this long-running kind of coalition and it has sometimes been uneasy and it has sometimes meant that you have had to make uh, compromises on both sides. The difficulty is now in a much more polarized world, how do you make those compromises in the kind of wink, wink, nod, nod to both sides to say, don't worry, we're just making this as a compromise temporarily, but when we get into power, we're gonna do and fulfill your heart's desires. If I could jump in, sort of moving the question a little bit, um, I'm very much enjoying this right now. Um, moving the question to Brexit, which is obviously very topical, as the UK has officially left. What we've seen since the departure from the EU is we've seen various stories about how small entrepreneurs are losing their businesses right now and are losing their business with the European Union. And obviously in the speech that we're talking about, um, Annalise talks about trying to keep the small entrepreneur because we have to keep their confidence and if they lose their business, they lose all the confidence in the market and what's happening. So my question is, if Labour were to obtain a majority in the House of Commons in the next general election, how are we going? How, how would they manage the loss of small business due to Brexit? And how are they going to bring back the confidence in the market? Oh, this is probably... That's the easy question. That's the easy question for the conversation today. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, if, if, if you think about... Uh, if we assume that the next few years genuinely are going to be quite bad years for the UK overall, which I think is um, fairly possible um, in, in many regards, um, I'm not. I don't think Brexit is. You know, the it's it's not and everything that happens. It's not going to stop any sort of business in the UK. The UK is still going to trade internationally and so on. But it's it's clearly having an impact. And there are other consequences of the pandemic and so on that are coming through if there's a problem. The, the problem is it's it's nearly it's not about bringing back confidence. It's it's creating something new because that's the thing, economies always change. They always have. I mean the way we talk about economies like uh, or how, even how we taught economics of course has changed drastically over the last 30, 40 years and it did before that and it will continue to do so. The the question is basically to what extent um, can you establish a framework in which you talk about something dynamic looking forward? I think Brexit for now is, is it happened. It's going to continue to happen. Um, 
we will discuss all these things. So the, the shift, I think, for labor has to be um, to start not just to be reactive to it, but to embrace it and do something with it. But that with it needs to be genuinely, genuinely transformative in, in a way that it wasn't before. So it's not about what's, what's the best in a sense. It's, it has to be something that is other than kind of the straw man thing. So one thing in the speech, for example, which is kind of in response to the crisis right now, there was a point where she says, you know, there are some who would argue that basically the process should just be something that works itself through business individuals left standing once the pandemic ends by definition will be the strongest for the laissez-faire approach. It's a bit of a straw man thing because it's, it's not even the conservative government has ever embraced policies like this. And after the last crisis, big recession in 2010, the conservative government massively supported certain, um, sorry, the, it was the coalition government, they massively supported certain types of businesses. They, the sort of outsourcing that happened was a financing of a lot of them, the sort of way certain tax credit schemes were set up were subsidies to companies effectively. So it always, it's, it's a bit of a strong an argument that anyone is proposing this. So I think that's not the right narrative to go into. The right narrative is discussing kind of what is the alternative framework. There's uh, Simon Griffiths at Goldsmith uh, has written a really great book a few years back about this, that, that very often in the past, Labour and other um, social democrat parties um, have often framed kind of right-wing governments as basically trying to create a more laissez-faire state, an anti-status state, whereas that's never been what they've done. They've transformed the state to benefit a particular type and section of the economy. So it's constructing an alternative rather than fighting that, that straw man that isn't really there, I think, that, that is the best chance in creating a new narrative. I was just going to say, that reminds ahead, me a okay. bit of a Bernie Sanders phrase when he was on the election stump. And he used to say, we have socialism in America. We have socialism for the big corporations and, yes. and the companies. And we have free market capitalism for the rest. And, and that is actually the truth of it, isn't it? It's socialism or, or state intervention. Or some, but not all. Well, I, I think I think you're absolutely right, and I just wanted to bring it back to a question from earlier, which got a little bit lost in, in a very interesting discussion. Which was, yeah, and you talked about the fact that sitting on the fence leads to poor election results and a lack of a clear ideological breakthrough. And Lloyd, you said that John McDonald had called this a uh, extension of some of his policies, whilst the Labour list came and said that this was a break with the Corbyn era. I'm just trying to gauge where we stand in terms of the future, because there feels like amongst Labour activists, it feels like there's some kind of resurgence. The polls are looking good, but not great. In Parliament, obviously this was received very well, but does it feel like this is a party in waiting? And does it feel like this is a new Labour party with a new future? Oh, this is, this is many kind of underlying questions. I mean... I, uh, of course, was a, uh, um, a Corbyn supporter. I wouldn't quite yeah, call it a Corbynista, but I s supported Jeremy's general view. I I'm really more of a McDonaldite. I'm much support John than Jeremy. And there are nuances between their different approaches. But um, uh, my big feeling was the difference between, and I stood for Parliament under Ed Miliband as well, you know, kind of, I'm not, I didn't just join suddenly with Jeremy. Um, my big feeling was that 
Ed and Jeremy's policies were often not so far apart, but it was a case of presentation. And I often use kind of a fracking example that our policy on fracking with uh, Ed was that we supported fracking as long as it could fulfill these 12 conditions. Um, and so all the Greens thought that we were um, basically pro-fracking, even though those conditions were under current technology impossible to meet. And um, under Jeremy, it, the policy was we're against fracking unless it can meet these 12 conditions. And the conditions were identical. You know, it was about presentation. It was about presenting us as more radical, sometimes more radical than we were. And sometimes actually just rebalancing it so that we were saying to people that we're just not cautious. We're not, you know, kind of um, cautious Susan. We're, we're, you know, kind of a bit more radical. Now, um, uh, this possibly in the Labour list perspective is restoring back the tone. To tell you the truth, I think the tone, yes, is important for electoral success, but I'm interested in what the policies are. And I think the policies are not so fundamentally different because the policies of um, a more free market approach, actually, I think, uh, aren't really existent, as Yana said, aren't really existent anywhere. No one is really advocating uh, um, a kind of Thatcherite deregulation at this moment. That's not where anyone really is. And so the, the policies have shifted, the, that uh, Overton window, as they call it, has kind of shifted more broadly. Um, now, whether it will work having a more cautious tone with the electorate or whether you needed a more radical tone, that's all about what your strategy is. Is it to rally the base? Is it to not? You know, almost all of 2018, we were leading in the polls. Straight after the 2017 election, we were many points ahead in the polls. In 2019, almost all of 2019, we were down in the polls, and that disastrous election happened. And then 2020 into 2021, we're now kind of back to where we were in 2018. Um, but none of this is winnable and winning strategy yet. Uh, and, and most of this needs to convince conservatives or people who have gone over to the Conservatives to vote for us, and it needs a Conservative to vote to splinter. Because, of course, in most of those Labour heartlands, it wasn't actually that the Labour vote just disappeared overnight. It was that the Conservative vote solidified overnight. So all those splintered voters that had never really voted Labour, but hadn't always rallied around Conservatives, they came forward for Conservative and then got the majority. So it's quite a complex picture about how, what your strategy you do to kind of both undermine conservative confidence, splinter the conservative votes and unify the Labour vote. And all of those things put together, it is difficult to um, relay that economically. The link, the red thread between most of those people, those conservative one-time voters um, and, those, um, and those urban um, young voters, is that they want more government intervention, that they think the previous policies of less government intervention has not worked. And whilst Labour in 97, 2010 did very well in addressing the outcomes, some of the underlying structural issues were not addressed. And there is a desire to change some of those underlying structural issues that people feel have forgotten them. So Labour probably could be more radical on some of those economic policies, but then more conservative on some of the social policies. And maybe that's the balance. Maybe, maybe what you need to do, and this is my argument that I made to Jeremy during the EU referendum, EU debacle, is that you can't compromise on every policy. But what you need to say to different groups of voters is that we're going to give you this policy 
full red-blooded, but you're going to have to accept that we're going to give another policy in other areas, full red-blooded in the other area. And the danger is that you try and compromise on the actual policy and you get interesting and good um, speeches like this that we're all trying to read into rather than being able to whack us in the face with. I think, I think when, I, when I looked at the, the speech, I think that it's a really good description actually, uh, Lloyd. It's, when I looked at the speech, I had the feeling it's, it's the problem is not that the, the speech basically tries to, it feels like appeal to something like 90% of the population. Um, but but if you target, obviously, if you want to win, you know, and and if you want to win forty to fifty percent of the vote, it also means you need to understand who you don't need to reach. And you know, it's, you're right. It's you have to make certain choices and you have to balance this. Like, what can I give basically that group that the other group doesn't dislike too much? Right? It's kind of that thing. Of what can I give to them that the other side accepts? Uh, yeah, it's kind of that kind of uh, building. But it still means that you can annoy a certain, a, a quite large amount of voters who, who won't vote for you. Um, I think what this speech does, it's, it's, and that happens very often, and I think it did happen under, under Ed Miliband um, as well. It tries to ultimately read, it's, it's too afraid to accept who one might not reach. Um, and, and I think that's the problem why it in the end doesn't go deep enough because it feels like it, it's, it's what it offers you know, I doubt is enough. Now, you might say that's the starting point right now. You know, there are a few, presumably, you never know in Britain, but presumably a few years um, before, you know, a next election comes. But that's exactly the point, I think. It's, it's what needs to happen here is the opposite of what happened under Ed Miliband. That is that a new narrative is being developed proactively now, rather than now trying to be kind of very, very amenable, kind of with, with positive, sensible approaches. It is tone, and I think maybe, yes, a slightly different tone is worth trying. But I think the, the great thing is, if you have a tone that is that sounds more, whatever we want to use, reason, subtle, um, uh, whatever, if, if you have that tone, that should allow you to be more ambitious in what you actually then present. I, I always think that's the thing. That sort of tone should go with the bigger proposals, not the other way around. I think I, I agree with most of what you're saying. <laughs> the only thing that I think to, I think the jury is not out on necessarily is about you can piss off the um, your opponents uh, that are, as long as they don't make up the 50% kind of thing, yes. um, to paraphrase. Because I think what you also want to do is fragment your opponents. So yes, you can annoy them, but if you annoy them so much that they unify to then vote for the same person against you, actually you're making a rod for your own back. What you want to do is make a group of them kind of feel like, well, I'm not gonna vote for them, but I'm not really against them. And if you look at 97, the voter turnout actually went down from 92. And that wasn't because of the Labour vote, that was the Conservative vote. A lot of Conservatives decided to stay at home because they didn't really feel that it was worth it, but they also didn't think that Labour was very much of a threat. And the other part of the Conservative vote um, that has kind of went very right-wing, kind of the other direction. So this Conservative splintered and there's a danger, and there was a danger at the 2019 election, what you've kind of got, and I got this, you know, I'm on election day even, people 
in my seat's a very left-wing seat and I got a decent majority, but even on election day, people shouting out the window, terrorist supporters, I'm very conservative. Now, what I did is that narrative, even though it was a load of rubbish, <laughs> you know, galvanize them to vote, whereas they may have been non-voters previously. So I, I get everything else you've said, but I think on that, it is a bit more nuanced. And so I want to jump in with our final question as we come to the end of today's podcast, and it's looking at the UK on an international stage. In July of 2020, the Shadow Chancellor and the Shadow Foreign Secretary wrote a letter to their Conservative counterparts, asking them to, and I quote, coordinate action to support fragile economies so the whole world can pull together and beat the virus, end quote. In recent weeks, we've watched the more affluent countries purchase the world stock of the vaccine, and with the UK being ranked as the sixth largest economy in terms of G GDP, does it not have a role in supporting countries around the world who may be unable to afford or obtain access to the vaccine, whether it be due to cost, infrastructure, war, etc.? Lloyd, if you want to take that on first. Yes, but in this case, charity does start at home, I'm afraid. Uh, uh, you know, kind of, we have vulnerable people in this country that we need to vaccinate for up to February. And I think it is very difficult to argue that we should be charitable while there are still people that desperately need it here in Britain. Once that is done, and bearing in mind the problem at the moment is not cost, there isn't a cost problem, the problem is supply. As soon as the supply problem is resolved, i.e. you have those plants in Germany that are sitting idle at the moment start actually working, you know, because this is the big problem with the AstraZeneca thing, it's nothing to do with the British plant, it's that the German-Belgian plants are not at their full capacity, but also we get other plants going, then yes, Britain has a job to do that outreach. But there is a danger if we shout too much about doing the outreach before you've done your own, then you don't bring the population along with you. I mean, that's also why the AstraZeneca vaccine is very important. They have licensed it already for generic companies in India to start producing. You have the Indian vaccine and the Russian vaccine also that produce at very low cost and you have the, um, the the coalition with Gabby and the Bill and Melinda Gates to bring those costs down for the developing countries and when that vaccine supply is there I mean Britain I think has something like 200 million doses overall um, it won't ever need to use all of them Britain will have purchased them and actually it would be quite right for Britain then to start using those vaccines that it's purchased but no longer needs to make sure everyone else in the world gets them because that's what you want. Um, but I suspect we are at least six months off that at the moment um, because it's not a cash problem, it's not a financing problem, it is a physical capacity issue. Just to follow up on that quickly, um, obviously you talk about vaccine strategy and Tony Blair recently uh, released an article talking about the fact that we should vaccinate everybody um, get them to 60% immunity and then start distributing second doses. Uh, obviously that got some criticism from analysts saying it's easy to say that when you're not involved in politics. Uh, did you have any views on his kind of vaccine comments or how you would change the way we're vaccinating people? Look, I think that is an extremely difficult, um, I mean, what, the bits that I thought that were good about Tony Blair's interventions is he was saying really, doing the maths, we need to be increasing our capacity in Britain to a minimum of uh, five uh, million. Um, we've got at the moment two million a week and we need to be at five million a week to be able to get through the bulk of people in time 
And once you've got that capacity up and running, you then need to run that through to start vaccinating the whole world. And so that's a very good strategy. Whether you're going to do the one vaccine and then switch, I think really depends on what the reality of that vaccine usage is in um, the real world, uh, the, the efficiency of it in the real world. And Israel showing that it's about 50% on the first dose. And then it zooms up on the second dose means that the calculation is very marginal about, uh, the question is, are you, if, if, you are, um, if you only have 50% uh, efficiency, is it better to then make sure that those most vulnerable people that are three or four times more likely to die are then vaccinated their second dose to get them up to the 90s percent? Or is it better to vaccinate people who are unlikely to get ill at all? Because the problem with this virus is not people getting it per se, it is that it overwhelms the health systems. Um, and for some people, it has some very deadly effects, particularly older people. So the things you need to deal with to get society back to normal are those crippling effects. And then you can have a much slower rollout to try and to try and beat the virus entirety. The reality is I suspect this virus will be a long run virus that we'll now have in our circulation for life, for, 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 for many, many decades to come. It will just become less toxic component because we will either vaccinate or it will adapt. I suppose just on that, oh, sorry, just on that before we finish, um, it is also important to note as well that obviously if we're gonna follow the strategy of one vaccine and wait, that does go against the advice of companies such as Pfizer who have produced their vaccine. So I think that is also very important to keep in mind in the discussion. Yeah, I mean, and, and the thing is, to neither Tony or I are medical professionals. And yes, you should always think skeptically of, um, of, of what scientists say. I mean, the, the Royal Society slogan is something like, um, believe no one or something like this you know kind of take no one's word for it that's the, that's the slogan of the royal society take no one's word and that's quite right you should take no one's word not witty or or anyone but equally i think you have to take what they say with slightly more weight than what say tony blair a, a, a good or whatever whatever you think of him um former prime minister but not someone that's got um scientific or medical background that that is really crucial for for another reason and that is obviously the, the vaccine program is only a big function of its success is going to be the take up in the population and it looks so far as if the take up is actually quite good in the older age groups and, and those groups currently um high up on the priority lists um and that is really crucial i think if you see the change obviously to the vaccination schedules initially was done by the, the experts were tasked with making these recommendations. Now, there's always a political decision that has to be made. It is ultimately a political decision. But if you change things against basically the advice of that body that's set up, and you can always look at the composition of these bodies, are they the right people or not, and so on. But if you change this on a more sporadic way, um, you that that creates a danger of undermining um, some of the credibility because there is, as, as Lloyd said, a lot of uncertainty. We have to see how some of these things work out in practice. And we need to be honest about it. And, and there might be changes to a schedule, but those changes should now be in response to the em empirical experience. If we realize something could work better, then those changes should happen. And in relation to, just, just to come back briefly to this point about Britain's role in the world here, there is on the one hand the vaccination program, 
But the second thing is obviously the recovery program and the economic programs uh, around it. The vaccines are crucial. Um, but the, the second thing is around this. And there is actually a huge worry because this isn't just about aid and so on. It's probably actually for many countries not the most important part, but it's about the structures. And sorry if I sound like a broken record here again, but it is about structures of finance here. And where ultimately still, to be fair, the speech actually mentions the kind of debt burdens of, of countries that are less privileged than the United Kingdom. Um, but the problem is a lot of these debt burdens are obviously related back to private financial institutions that provide this sort of financing. And if that isn't addressed, and you know, a lot of this ends up in derivative markets where you know, we can see the sort of speculation that you know, we've seen now last week, okay, this time not by a hedge fund, but by a set of investors and so on, the GameStop stuff. If we, if we see these sorts of things continuing to be possible, well, then, then it's, it's going to be incredibly difficult because what stops nothing, there's nothing that stops people from betting against um, debt obligations from countries in the same way that you can do this with, uh, with companies. And we've seen it in the Eurozone crisis where you know investors bet against countries effectively. So if we're serious about these sorts of things, the, the rules and the engagement around finance are as important mm -hmm. as actually some of those vaccine rollout programs in terms of the longer term development that, that those countries can have. And it's a huge question where the UK holds a lot of responsibility. This question of should the city of London now freed from EU regulation, okay, losing some access to European markets, but should it basically be engaging in sort of businesses that it wasn't allowed even under the relatively loose regulation of EU finance? Well, if it does, it would actually open itself up to some practices that could be incredibly detrimental for a lot of countries, but it could exacerbate some of those debt problems um, and the refinancing of them massively. So there's, there's a huge, huge issue here as well, where the UK plays big responsibility in, in international uh, circles. And I think it's something where um, you know, I think, um, the, again, if the Labour Party wanted to talk about these things comprehensively, where well, it could make a bigger contribution to the state than, than it does maybe at the moment. Yeah, no, that's a very fair point to make. Um, and that does bring us to an end of today's conversation. And I want to say thank you to both yourself, Jan, and yourself, Lloyd, for coming on. Well, to say that it was a thought-provoking and interesting discussion would be an understatement. And yes, we just wanted to say thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I can't believe how much ground we've covered uh, in the hour. Uh, so thanks for taking your time out and um, uh, for all the interesting thoughts. Thank you very much. Thanks for, for having us. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation as well. See you next time. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Backbench from myself and Jonas. We just want to say, if you want to check out more of The Backbench, check us out at backbenchpodcast.com and also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And make sure you come back next week for another interview. Thank you for listening and see you all later.